You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I was curious who Carver would send. He's on to you. Well, you know where you stand. You made your bed. I'm standing in your doorway. And turn around and go home. You can tell him you didn't get anything out of me. That's it? Go home? I didn't ask you to get involved in this. It's too late for that. Why did you marry him? He told me he loved me. Oh, that sounds good. Do you know I used to look in the papers every day for your obituary? Well, I'm sorry I keep disappointing you. What was it, James? Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club, which is Trek FM's General Geek Show. I am the host here, Matthew Rushing, and I am pleased, as always, to have some incredible guests with me tonight as we are going to be diving back into the world of James Bond. As of this recording, we will only have two James Bond films left, which makes me so sad. But, uh, never fear, they are planning another Craig film, and we may... Yes, we may just go back and look at Never Say Never Again. So, never say never again. Um, of course, you know if we're doing Bond, uh, I've got these incredible panelists that are here with me, and I'm so thankful to have them back. Uh, Christy, how are you doing? I'm good. I've settled in. I've got my fancy black dress on with my boa and my diamond earrings. I'm ready to go. You're not going to get rid of me. Man. Man, you get so fancy, so fancy. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Uh, well, John, is that? No, that's not a martini shaker. I, I, that's just water bottle. Yeah, it's just so. water. Well, it, you know, uh, uh, Christy showed up themed in the uh, the black evening dress and the boa. I thought I would show up themed uh, having just come out of uh, a slum shower in Hong Kong, um, <laughs> just completely drenched and uh, handcuffed. So that's going to be my look. Wow. I'm yeah. 
Showing up to a show handcuffed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah. yeah, they even well, left we you with the soap. How you got there? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh my! Well, um, gosh, I feel so underprepared for my Mumford Sons <laughs> T-shirt. Uh, but um, before we do dive into the show, and and we're uh, we're talking about tomorrow never dies. Uh, make sure you check us all over the place. Uh, we are everywhere here is Trek FM. But uh, it's been a while. Go over to iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts, whichever you prefer, whichever medium you're on, and give us a star rating and review. Help people find the show. Uh, you know, it is one of the best ways for people to be able to find the show is by you giving us a star rating review. So be sure to do that. You, you can find us, though, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We're also over on the web at Trek.FM. You can check out every single show that we are doing there, as well as, as you're there, maybe you want to get to our listeners-only discussion group. Uh, there's a couple ways to do that. You can hit discussion on any of the menu bars there on the show pages, or you can go over to Facebook, Facebook. Uh, Type in Babel into the search field, and that will get you over to the listeners' discussion group where you will have the opportunity to talk from listeners all over the country and all over the world as we discuss everything that's going here on Trek FM. And then last but not least, you can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. Make sure you are liking us there on Facebook, following us on Twitter, and all of the other places you can find us, like Instagram and everything like that. So, Guys, uh, we are continuing Bond, and I thought this was really interesting. You know, we talked about last time how big GoldenEye was and how much pressure there was kind of on that film coming back. We need to bring Bond back in a big way. But I think this is interesting, too, because because of the massive success of GoldenEye, they now have pressure on them to try and repeat this. And so... um, They've got no Fleming material left. So, of course, they're making this up. And I thought it was really interesting that Bruce uh, Fernstein, who was the, the, the original writer on the... There's a lot of, of rewrites that happen. There's a lot of people who got their hands on this. But his idea was his inspiration for his experience in journalism and how uh, he really kind of wanted to ground this in that nightmare reality of journalism and what it was becoming. And I thought... That's such an interesting place to start for a Bond film. And when I think of Bond movies, that's not necessarily where I think I would first go when trying to come up with a story for a new Bond movie. I, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I think that it it's a good idea in theory because it's creative. It's something we haven't seen before. Um, you certainly don't think your villain is going to be the leader of a media company. Um, why would he want to take over the world? But I think that it's a good thing in the sense of what you said, Matt, about how it's a nightmare of reality, that it's something that you could totally see being plausible. And I think that's what makes it, as we've said of other films in the past, makes it grounded. Um, And I've always really liked films that stretch something that you think is plausible enough to come true. Um, sort of the the Frankenstein's monster aspect of it starts with one thing and then snowballs into something you didn't plan for. Um, but I I think that the villain was a little weak in making that come forth in the movie. I think that the henchmen were a little more 
um, terrifying than he was um, because it seemed like it sort of the press orange for murder thing again, where it's just a, a guy telling other people to do all his dirty work. Nice. Yeah. I, I had really mixed feelings about the villain. Um, not because I think Jonathan Price is bad in any sense. He He's clearly enjoying playing this over the top bad guy. Um, but the, the thing that struck me as odd is that I like the idea that he was a guy who wasn't just trying to take over the world for the sake of taking over the world, because there are a lot of Bond villains where it's just like, I, I, I'll do this and then I'll have more money than anybody. I'll take over the world. I'll create political unrest here. This character, Carver, just really seemed to delight in, in the manipulation of it all. Mm-hmm. So there was that that he had going for him. And he he clearly delighted in the behind-the-scenes power that he had. Like, there's that great sequence with all the world leaders on his screen, and, and you got Michael G. Wilson and a cameo there. Um, so all of that is fun. And I thought, they're really treading an interesting line here, because it's the movie doesn't have to make a statement about media or um uh you know the 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 state of manipulating media or anything like that all that has to do is just sort of be believable enough as a thing to the audience it doesn't need to get into the complexities of journalistic bias or who's who's pulling the strings who's doing what it really doesn't need to be accurate or very thoughtful with any of that it just sort of has to play into the zeitgeist that has to play into this idea that people in the audience might have and go, Oh yeah. You know, I kind of always thought that uh, the news was a little weird. This is a fun way to explore that. For me, I, I thought it was really nice to kind of start with something so grounded, um, which, you know, bond doesn't necessarily always do. And so to think of kind of a very real world, scenario and real world place to kind of pin the story I thought that was interesting and I would say except for a few elements this Bond movie is one that is quite grounded uh, in in its um, villain in what the story is what's happening and 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 whether or not this could actually happen you know there there's so much of the movie I feel like in the story where it, it, it doesn't feel all that stretched to be like, wow, this this could possibly happen, you know, especially with the way it plays out, with the way they use the technology and everything. So uh, it, it felt like a good place to ground the movie and then allow maybe the, the bondness to take over um, later on. But I do think, to me, thinking of this kind of as a... Um, a starting point, you know, a cornerstone for this next Bond film. You, it, it was nice for me to feel like it wasn't like we're trying to outdo GoldenEye and necessarily make it bigger. We're definitely trying to make it different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really nice, at least here before we completely get into everything else, you know, I feel like the intention here is really smart with where they're thinking of st- uh, the story structure. Well, it, it's a cool idea to yeah to to ground it in something that is a little more 
understandable for the audience like oh okay well, he, he owns newspapers and cable channels and this and he, he's amassed this fortune and and he's a little off his rocker so he's taking it too far as opposed to here believe this guy who's just some strange person of unknown origin who can suddenly take satellites out of the sky you know <laughs> like right. like there's something about this from the get-go that is a bit more believable where it stretches credulity is that, you know, like I said, the character of Carver just sort of needs to play into the audience fantasy that it's one evil guy who controls everything and that that's what makes us crazy. Whether it's, you know, the headlines in the papers or creating the news, which is the the kind of running gag in the movie to uh, that that bit of throwaway dialogue of oh yeah well we're going to release the new os and we filled it full of bugs so mm -hmm. people will have to upgrade for years you know again that that's the sort of handed right to the audience to say here we're, we're going to enjoy this ride there down this uh uh conspiratorial fantasy <laughs> that will work for this movie and i have to add to the whole subject matter of this is perfect timing as well for the 90s being when all of these movies were coming out dealing with the manipulation of technology because it mm. was advancing so fast they were making movies like hackers had just come out and the net and all of these things about people abusing that technology um so it fit right in with all the other films like that and of the 90s anyway yeah for real yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, I, uh, it's one of the things I like you pulling up, you know, you think of a, a, a silly movie like The Net with Sandra Bullock and how, you know, crazy, ridiculous it looks now. Mm -hmm. But then there's such a, it, it feels more real, you know, uh, and, and I, I, you know, I love this, uh, this idea of where we're starting. And I think it's interesting. There is a Star Trek connection here. We get uh, tons of rewrites happen on this movie, but we we do get one of the biggest rewrites happens with Nicholas Meyer. He's brought in to perform uh, a massive rewrite, which everybody knows, uh, if you know Star Trek, did the same thing for Star Trek Two, and then, of course, uh, directed that and directed Star Trek Three and uh, Star Trek Six, and has been tangentially linked to Discovery, although I don't know how much input he really has had on Discovery. Uh, but I, I think it's fascinating to see, because he is one of those people, a lot like in the background, like uh, Carrie Fisher, where they came in and they, they doctored strips for people. You know, they, they fixed scripts, and you may never have known it. In fact, his name isn't on the credits. I think it's on the adaptation, uh, the, the book, uh, if I remember correctly from my research. So, you know, he doesn't even get a credit, but he is a person who had an influence on this film. So I thought that was interesting. Um, they did want to go with Martin Campbell as director, but he said no. And and so instead, they get somebody that they had tried to get before. So they get Roger Spottiswood. Uh, they had wanted him to direct a Bond film with uh, Timothy Dalton in the lead role, but of course that did not work out then, and so he's back into the fold and directing this film. And, you know, I, honestly, I would say director-wise, I didn't feel too much of a difference between the way that C that Campbell did things in um, GoldenEye and the way that this film works as well. I felt like they they work very nicely as companion pieces, and they felt 
very similar in a lot of ways. And so uh, I felt like they did a great job choosing a director who could come in to, to pick up where Martin Campbell had left off. And it, at least, you know, when it comes to direction, I don't think he skipped a beat, honestly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned it as kind of a companion piece, kind of a, a continuation from GoldenEye. Not, not with any level of the plot, but it, it just feels like we're very much in the same world. There's nothing stylistically that has been reinvented here. So I think Spottiswood did the right job by not overdoing his job. I mean, that's, I mean, I wouldn't even think about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, in, in many ways, it kind of felt like when, um, you know, some of the early directors swapped places and you, you didn't necessarily feel like um, there was a huge change. You know, you felt that continuation, especially I think in the Connery films, the, 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 uh, the, the first four at least, you know, you really did feel uh, a lot of, um, continuity between them and just kind of the way they looked and the and the way it felt so yeah i think this was a really smart uh smart thing and it'll be interesting to see if that is something that continues as we continue on with the brazen era i wanted to ask you guys you know i feel like the opening action sequence is it's it's very big and it's very bold and I felt like it feels a lot like a lot of older Bond films all put together. Um, and I wanted to, to see what you guys thought of it because, you know, they're always trying to kind of find a way to outdo themselves when it does. I mean, this is the one place where it does feel like they're trying to outdo themselves is with the opening action sequence. And how did this movie is, is we're coming back into the Brosnan era. How did this one live up for you guys? I did definitely feel what you're saying, Matt, like it was a, a Bond greatest hits in that opening sequence. Um, you've got Russians again, well, or supposed to be in Russia. You've got, um, you know, a group of um, terrorists all gathering together about, you know, all these different weapons. And you're trying to ID people. And then, you know, we, of course, bring back in M. Um, and then she's having to argue now with... Um, the government and the military. Um, and then, you know, I like that they kind of bring in Bond in a subtle way, calling him White Knight this time. Um, that was cool. But yeah, I, I think otherwise it feels very familiar. But in a great way, um, I feel like Arnold dealing with the music um, and then the actors as well taking good direction made a lot of intensity in that scene. So you don't feel like you're moving into the film slowly. They're coming at you full force and then, you know, Bond runs off with the plane. Um, so I, I really liked it. Yeah. And what I love in that uh, opening sequence is not showing Bond for a little while. Mm -hmm. Like we know it's coming. We know exactly what's coming. Um, but just giving us a little bit of a delay, um, a, a little bit of time for it to sink in. You know, we already met Brosnan in the last movie, but it's almost like they felt like they had to reintroduce you to Bond this time around. 
Um, and, and I'm glad they did. And I love that that action sequence kept going. Like you think it's going one place and then it keeps going and then keeps going. The tension feels real. The stakes feel real. Um, I know that we'll talk about the, the other people in Bond's life in this movie, but I have to give a special shout out to, uh, the character of Charles Robinson, who we meet here, played by Colin Salmon, who I just think is one of the coolest people in film ever. He's got, I mean, he's got a tiny role in this. But he's got loads of presence, and uh, I, I think he's I think he's badass in that you know thirty seconds we get of him on screen. One of the things that really stuck out to me about the action sequence is how it did build on Goldeneye and the relationship between M and Bond, and how much that's changed. You know, in in the first movie that we get Frozen, he's a misogynistic dinosaur. Here. He's her most trusted agent, yeah. you know, and she trusts him and his his gut uh, in a way that, you know, she's defending him with the Admiralty um, and which I actually really liked, too, because the, you know, Bond is a commander in the the British Navy. And so the fact that the Admiralty is there kind of makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, and so um, and, and just kind of the way this all works and and and. Also, just the action sequence being in the late 20th century, you know, where we're having this, these spy cameras and everything, and we're the, the what's happening at home with M and everything, they could be much more involved with Bond in the field like this. I thought that was really well done. And I, I just think the action sequence itself is fun. It's really well paced. You know, like you said, John, we wait for a while to meet Bond, and then once we do... He looks, you know, swashbuckling and debonair, you know, and all at the same time rugged. You know, he's mm-hmm. got his like fatigues on and stuff, um, sweet jacket, <laughs> everything. And, and just like it's a really is just a I, I, I it's kind of a heart pounding scene, you know, and you're just waiting for how he's going to get out of it. You know, he is going to get out of it. But then the way he does is kind of um, I don't know it. it there's so much happening and and it, it feels like a lot of different movies, but it has that kind of fun, almost Top Gun type ending to it. You know, he shoots the guy from behind him into the plane above him, and he just he flies away, and you know he saves the day. And I thought that that was a, a great way to start this Pierce Brosnan movie and just kind of bring you back and make you super excited for what's going to come next. And having a countdown going literally the entire time, I think, also really built the intensity for me. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. One more thing that I really noticed, too, um, is we were kind of talking about relevance. You know, this actually really fits the time period, too, and something that's going to become more and more accentuated throughout the years, which is this idea of a terrorist black market, which is what this is. And it's something that, you know, just a few years later is going to be the scare of everybody in the world that that this would happen that bombs of these magnitude would end up in the hands of terrorists um and so the fact that the bond writers are kind of seeing this already at this time period i think uh this is one of the places where i do start to see that this movie is putting Bond on the cutting edge again instead of Bond being one where we're just copying the edge. Or being way behind the time so that it's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Yes, no black exploitation no. here. No. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I found that to be something that it really drew, drew me back in, you know, rewatching this this time, how there was, uh, you know, even at the beginning, even at the opening uh, credits here, there is this relevancy, um, and I really like that. And I think, you know, the idea of, of relevant story and relevant villain, as we kind of touched on just a little bit, but I, I wanted to dive in more with you guys, is, you know, I don't know about you, but I was re-watching this and thinking, this seems even more relevant today than it did then. When you think about the idea of, like, 24-hour news, social media, the way that people use this type of power the way we all fear people actually do use this type of power, and the fact that the the villain feels like you've taken Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and Rupert Murdoch and rolled them all into one. Uh, it I don't know. There was just something about that. I was like, wow, they really were. They were on the cutting edge, I think, with this story. Well, I, kind of like I was saying before, that I, I think it's... I think it's relevant because it's all stuff we know, but it's like they're doing the fantasy version of that. Like, it, no doubt, there, there are powerful people in the world. There are powerful people who who delight in manipulating the messages that we get from the media we consume. Um, I mean, man, if only this movie had been made in the era of Facebook and Twitter and social media now that we have uh, attached to our hands and in front of our eyes 24 hours a day, in addition to 24-hour news um, and the uh, simply the, the way that the spin of news stories is played with in this movie, it, it's all pretty incredible. I think the, you know, I, I still have to temper that in my head with the idea that this is a movie where in the end, the good guy has to kill the bad guy, <laughs> you know? And, and I think there's something really clever that they do that, that's almost a throwaway, but I wanted to pose it to you guys. What do we think at the end of M's little white lie in reporting Carver's death? Oh, I cracked because, up. Okay, it's funny, but, and I did too, because she's so wonderful. Judy Dench is just great in every moment um but it's sort of like does it tell the audience okay there are bad lies but there are good lies too <laughs> you know <laughs> as opposed to holding just sort of the truth of journalism as a a separate and and a whole ideal that that we should be concerned about instead we say well in this case here is this one bad guy who uh, who had so much control and could spin a story and create a story however he wanted to. But uh, as long as that power is in the hands of people that we agree with, then we're okay with that. Right. I mean, I know it's there for fun. I know it's there as a joke. But um, it just sort of left me thinking like, okay, we, we weren't okay with making up headlines for the first hour and 57 minutes right but <laughs> now, now we're we in the are last, yeah now we're in the last minute we're like oh okay that, that's the sort of the reality now that we have to sit with um but no I, I i think that's part of what makes this movie so much fun by the way the only thing that is not relevant now uh i think he was using quark express <laughs> to lay out his headlines 
I'm just going to, yeah, that, that very much struck a, struck a place in my heart, uh, having used that program a lot in the nineties. Yeah, it looked like the software I used in um, like layouts for the yearbook in high school. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, wow, yes. that's how you're doing that. Okay. So I, I think you brought up a kind of an interesting, really interesting philosophical question that the movie doesn't do anything with. But the idea is, with that, you know, is it okay for the government to tell a white lie like that to cover up things? Um, and, and maybe, uh, you know, to allow a person to die with dignity that they didn't earn, you know, because in the end, what, what she's doing is actually a favor to Carver. Mm-hmm. It, it's know. a favor to Carver. And you, you have to think, though, that, OK, how do we actually tell the real story? OK, so there's this media mogul and he's got a stealth boat and he's stealing weapons. And also he's right. making up all these. Other, <laughs> he's trying to start uh, a and, war with China and Britain. Like, we got to stop. Right. Him. He tried to. Tried to start a war, and uh, we also have our top secret agent who uh, destroyed him with a sea drill, which is hilarious and gruesome and kind of dumb, but it, it had to end that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that's kind of a hard story to tell in the press. Better to say, ah, suicide. We're not really sure if the rest so of the So really, details. the sea drill was the shotgun over the fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. If you're gonna yes. show it in the beginning, you gotta use it later. Bravo. Oh, that's aw- that's awesome. <laughs> but, Bravo. That's awesome. But I do yeah. check off C drill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I do agree that like it, it it's sort of a favor to him in that too, like how is M gonna cover up technically her agent murdered the guy? Like she can't yeah. just say that on, you know, national, international news. Mm-hmm. We took him and you out. You got to protect the agent too. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, and you have to protect. I mean, it, too. We're talking about you know we're you're protecting the country and the world in the sense of like there are secrets that the governments are required to keep for our safety. You right. know, like yeah. uh, what, what like what ha- what happened here was that one of the most important pieces. Well, they also are protecting the American government too because one of the most important pieces of the American government is stolen that encoder Mm -hmm. that allows this whole mess to happen. So it's not just, you know, it's not just about necessarily telling the truth. It's about what that information would do in the public sphere and, and making that determination. And obviously, again, we already mentioned it's a joke in a movie. Well, what we're talking about is really interesting. Yeah. I I think going back to your original point here, Matt, it's that the character of Carver is, symbolic of these things that drive us crazy. So he doesn't have to be realistic in in a totally real sense, but he has to be realistic enough to represent the things that drive us crazy. I can't walk into a movie theater and necessarily uh, believe that a guy has a stealth boat and can steal weapons, but I know that I, I, I've been really frustrated with my computer's OS, and man, oh, there's got to be somebody behind it who's just messing with me. <laughs> like, that's a really satisfying belief to have. Even when you examine it, it's not totally true. Um, or here's a multitude of news stories out there, and uh, oh, I, I just know that the way some of these news stories are presented, they can't really be real. There's got to be somebody 
who knows more than anybody else who's pulling the strings. Well, again, on close scrutiny, it's not exactly like that, but it plays into what our feelings are. I think that that's really the brilliance of the character of Carver. And there was one part, though, that was totally realistic because I saw this happen recently in Georgia. The, <laughs> Which is? The political part of, oh, yeah, it's basically signed. Yeah. You know yeah, there right. are people going, yeah, sir, if you'll just sign this real quick, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then these right. laws get passed that you're going, how is that a thing? And now it's yeah. legal? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Sorry. <laughs> well, and I think, no, I think the thing that he's, uh, that makes him so fascinating is is that he is wagging the fake news. Mm-hmm. You know, he's use, using news to create more news so that he's more popular and more needed, you know, in the world. And um, I think that's the thing that is, you know, being it, we are in this 24-hour news cycle now. And in a lot of ways, the 24-hour news channels make news so that they can have something to fill the time. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah. It, it, you know, it, it it's not good. You know, I mean, when we when we turn national tragedies into 24-hour, just, you know, uh, 365 days a year, you know, uh, things. It, yeah. It's just, we can see the, the problem with this. And I, I think the movie does such a great job of showing how ridiculous it is yeah. <laughs> that we've allowed this to be okay and that we consume news now is entertainment, which is exactly what Carver is kind of turning his news into. It's entertainment for and, people. Yeah. And, and he's a guy who doesn't have a political point of view. It's Not just, at all. Yeah, it's just yeah. purely, I can profit from this. I can profit from the misfortune of others. And, and it, as long as I'm ahead with the better more salacious story if it bleeds it leads then i will benefit from this Mm -hmm. and loves making people fools yeah yeah absolutely yeah you know i i would say uh what's also really interesting for me and with price is that you 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 have him uh as the the character and and i think one of the things that i really like about the casting is that He's a diminutive guy compared to everybody else in the film. And so it is almost as if he is overcompensating mm-hmm. for something. And it's the fact that he doesn't feel big enough next to everybody else. And so he's got to be bigger and better and be able to destroy anyone he needs to uh, with the you know swipe of a one handed keyboard um you know so that he can because i mean i don't know how he types that fast and makes it actually with work. just his right hand works, yeah i know <laughs> it's amazing um but you know i that's one of the things i thought that was was kind of smart in the casting because he is this you know flamboyant over the top guy but it makes sense for somebody who when you look at him you know and you put him up to next to somebody like bond yeah, he he feels uh, unworthy, right? You know, uh, why do you think he's insecure about his wife? I'm, you know, and and where she's been and who she's been talking to and all this stuff, you know. Uh, so I just I I think that again they did a great job with the villain and who he is. The only downside to this villain is two words: stealth boat, because it don't make no sense. <laughs> Or call um, it something else. Is that a double negative? I'm sorry. Am I not <laughs> supposed to use double negative? Right. It doesn't make any sense to have a 
stealth boat because that it doesn't work. Um, because now, this if thing you is had huge, a, it's got to be big enough to yes, hold all of these yes. missiles and stuff. Yeah, but no one's yeah. gonna see it or hear it. It's it's uh, maybe they should have called it stealth ish, right? You know, it's <laughs> sneaky it, boat. It, yeah, it, it's stealthier than other boats, but uh, yeah. But it yeah. looks like a giant turtle. Right. Like yes. no one's going to go. Yes. That looks weird. <laughs> yeah. But 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 here's the thing. There there are the the uh, the the navy does have there there are there are stealth ships that exist. Now to the extent that they can do what this ship does in the movie, eh, movie's taking some creative license. Um, but, but the idea is that, that you, you have ships that can evade radar and sonar and traditional detection methods. However, if you're there far enough away <laughs> to see it coming, well, there it is. And a lot harder to hide. But it's painted matte black, John. <laughs> it- <laughs> you can't see it. It's painted matte black. That's the color of the ocean. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> no, the other thing oh. that I think is funny, too, is I'm like, if it's going to be some kind of a stealth thing in the ocean, isn't that just a submarine? Like, why did it always mm-hmm. have the top sticking out of the water? Oh, yeah, why doesn't... Interesting, yeah. Why isn't it just like, you know, the Red October? You know, that makes so much more yeah. sense. <laughs> to have the Caterpillar drive that you can't really hear, you know? So... And, you know, you have to have the guy who understands what's a caterpillar drive and what's not whales humping, you know? I right, mean, like, right, that's right. that's what you need. Like, this would make so much more sense. But no, stealth boat. And Just, they even call it the that part in of the movie. movie that, yes, they even call it that in the movie. And it just... It's the one thing in the movie that just kind of, like, hurts the rest of the film because it's so dumb, I can't believe it. Like... I can't believe it's not better. It would be like Batman in the middle of Batman versus Superman going, I'm going to my lair. Like, you would... <laughs> no, you don't say, I'm going to my stealth boat. <laughs> like, it just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, okay, enough about the villain and stealth boats, but... Man, uh, we had a great conversation there. Some really de- some real depth uh, to that, which I love. I love that we can pull that kind of stuff out. And I do think that that's one of the, the hallmarks of this movie. It has some of that stuff in it. But we have two Bond women in this film. We actually have three, but I, I don't know if we want to count the, the uh, you know, the linguist teacher. Um, she's barely on screen, you know. Yeah. Although I, I do want to point out, and I just thought this was interesting for you guys, this was the first Bond movie, I feel like, where they really started to kind of push the sensuality in the sense of, like, showing more. Because, I, you know, I can't remember the last time we saw a woman's butt in a Bond movie. Like, there's some actual nudity in this movie, you know, or close to it. Which, you know, most Bond movies, you know, they, they flirt with that. But this one, I, I felt like they actually pushed the boundary a little bit in that. Maybe it's because it's 1997 at this point. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I kind of wondered. I kind of wondered if they did that because, you know, they're they're really obviously Terry Hatcher is only going to be on the screen for a little while, 
And then the the relationship with Michelle Yeoh as uh, Wai Lin is a very different thing. So I, I don't know if in the scripting process, if that scene was added in just to kind of sex it up a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's kind of... It's kind of out of place. I think about other scenes and other Bond movies where they, they've pushed it a little bit. Think about, uh, well, in Thunderball, you know, you, you get a little more skin than you have up until that point. And then there's less in other movies and a little more in other movies. But, um, yeah, I, I wondered if they at some point had kind of had this thing plotted out and determined what the relationships were going to be and decide, you know, we need to we should throw in something a little salacious, too. <laughs> Well, and I even wonder, back to like them going with what was going on with other movies of the time, if they were kind of doing that, because in when I was looking at what movies were coming out around the same time, Showgirls was in 95, mm. and Striptease was in 96. Wow. So wow. I, I kind of feel like that may have been part of it, too. They're just like, well, sensuality is like the thing now, so we got to push the envelope. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, and it, it it was a it was an interesting scene because you don't necessarily need it, um, but it it's that that bridge scene for what you know Bond is doing after he comes back from a mission, you know, uh, and and before we get to the next mission, and so, you got to cleanse the um, palate. I thought, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I guess if you're James Bond, right, you know, uh, right. and he's working on his what Danish, I think it you're was brushing so, up on a little Danish, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, who could blame him? Um, so I. We we get to the actual Bond women here, and, and Paris Carver, Terry Hatcher, you know, she was a big deal at the time. You know, you, you had uh, Lois and Clark and stuff, and, and so I, I wondered what you guys thought of her and, and uh, her portrayal of the character and just her character in general and who she is with, you know, relation to James Bond. So I have to say right off the bat, this was my surprise. I was so sad that she did not get a bigger role because Lois and Clark was my jam. Okay. I was 10 years old when Lois and Clark was on TV and my dad and I watched it religiously. That was the first time I remember I ever saw a to be continued till a next season a year later. And I was so upset. <laughs> I was like, they can't do that to me. Like it just that was my show. I love Dean Kane and I love Terry Hatcher. So anyway. Wow. That's it. You you definitely have an emotional attachment to this. I do. That's, <laughs> that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, I kind of remember obviously I I knew that Terry Hatcher was a big deal at the time. I also watched Lewis and Clark, thought it was a, a really good show. Um it 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 was almost it wasn't stunt casting. But it was something that I was just very aware of, like, oh, well, here's here's a, a Bond woman who is already a big deal and already well known to American audiences, at least, uh, because of Lois and Clark. But I, I was I was I was very pleased to see that this character had this sort of underlying sadness and uh, the the give and take that she had with Bond and. You know, we never like to see the character who's just the sacrificial lamb in a Bond movie. But what I really liked is that her story had some resonance mm -hmm. in this. They they gave a background you could understand and believe. They gave her a, a, a situation in the present that you could understand and believe. And there is a, a real impact for Bond when her end 
is revealed. Um, it wasn't just uh, him walking in, finding her body, and thinking, oh, this is terrible, and I'm about to get killed, I need to get out of it. There's there's at least three times in that whole sequence that, that he keeps kind of going back to her. Mm-hmm. And, and you see him process what's going on. So I thought even though she had that short time in the movie, it's a time with some impact. And, and it, it deepens a little more of what we have out of this bond. Yeah, I completely agree with you, John. And, and I think my favorite part of their interaction was when she says, did I get too close for comfort? And then he says, yes, because I didn't think he was going to give that away. Um, because, you know, we always see Bond as this very guarded person where it's like, he's got two separate lives, you know, he has his missions and then he has, you know, women that come and go. Um, but you know, there was that one time where he had, you know, the woman of his life and lost her. And then now, you know, we're seeing another relationship that got pretty serious, but he decided to push her away. Um, yeah. and then seeing them meet up again. So I, I loved that depth as well. And that it wasn't just, she was some random girl and then they killed her off. Yeah. What I thought was really interesting about that, you know, um, money, penny and, and M are kind of giving Bon a hard time in the car, you know, about having to reconnect with her and M is being very cavalier about how, you know, you get as close as you need and pump her for information and they're making all these kind of innuendo jokes and everything. And yet Bond is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, I thought the way that that um, we get uh, Brosnan playing this here is that he does not want to see this woman again. This is mm-hmm. not a mission he wants. He He left her for a reason and she has had a mark on him and I think the way that he plays it when you know he knows she's going to come and he's drinking you know vodka straight you know you can tell this is not a man who is happy with the assignment that he has been given that he needs to rekindle something with her because you get the feeling like Bond needs this to be dead Mm -hmm. as a relationship and he doesn't want her and 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 the reason is is because you you he doesn't want to get reconnected, but he also, I think he doesn't want her getting hurt, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, there's all this emotion there. And I think it's, it's something that I I felt like was just very well done, especially in the portrayal with Brosnan. And I think Terry Hatcher does a pretty good job uh, in the role. Um, and I, I think she, she makes it believable. And like you were saying, John, the sadness that she has is of a woman who, chose to marry somebody who she's probably quite disappointed that she's married to and is very unhappy in that relationship. And, um, you know, there, there's all those type of things going on as well. And, you know, she, when she says, you know, I missed you to bond, uh, as they're about to fall into bed together, it, you believe it, you know, you believe that there was something there and in he, you get the feeling almost like he broke her, yeah. Uh spirit um at that point and and she ended up choosing Elliot because he was kind of this safe, you know, thing that was going to just take care of her and that's all that mattered. Mm-hmm. And so I thought all of that was just it's 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 a really nice thing that if you are going to have her die in the script that there was so much more going on than her just being somebody he, he met at the 
the you know like like if he had met the blonde yeah. um that helped carver you know the the announcer at the event you know that it's not her it, it's somebody that's actually um important to bond himself and the i think the thing that really bothers me though is doing some research and and, and hearing that monica bellucci had screen tested for the role and as Brazen put it, and I think it's perfectly, the fool said no. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine. I I like Terry Hatcher here, but when I know what Monica Bellucci did in the the, the minuscule time that she had in Spectre, I can imagine her here in her prime of of just like amazingness and beauty, and like she's still one of the most beautiful people on the planet. But just at this time period, I think she would have been an even better pick um, for this role. Uh, because I kind of expect Carver to probably be married to somebody exotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it that makes even more sense, you know. Um, g- give the uh, you know, um, you know, I don't know. Donald Trump likes his exotic women, right? So <laughs> I can see Carver wanting exotic women as well. Um, but I just oh, that broke my heart when they they said that they did not cast her. I was yeah. like, oh god, are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. But that is not the only uh, Bond woman that we get in this movie. And um, I think they both kind of break convention for the most part and, and actually turn out to be some of the um, best written female characters that we get in Bond movies up to this point. Um, you know, we get Wei Lin, uh, played by the wonderful Michelle Yeoh. This is the first time I think I really saw her, except for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was the other one uh, around this time. And... I I just I I I love this character, you know, and I think Michelle Yeoh is so much fun as this no nonsense, doesn't put up with Bond's crap, you know. Uh, she has no time for him, um, and and the competition between them at the beginning of the film when they're you know, when he sees her walking down the wall, mm-hmm. and he's just like you son of a you know like <laughs> you lucky lucky person, like, of you know, course like you get I to just, just the, walk the, away. Mm-hmm. Yes, like the whole thing, like I felt was, she's perfectly cast, and I love the 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 way that they play the character. It's really really well written, and they get to do some of the best action sequences together. I wrote down in my notes that the underwater scenes in the boat, um, when the two of them are on the Devonshire, um, was great because I mean it it's very intense when you're seeing. Oh no, the boat's tipping over. They might sink to the bottom of the ocean. Oh no, all of the missiles have blocked the door. How are they going to get out? You know, um, was great. And then they get to do that motorcycle chase together, which was even better with them being handcuffed together. And the whole joke about her going, don't get any ideas, which she says twice. <laughs> um, it it was great. And they give her such credit as a, a female character in, in a Bond movie, you know, of like you said, you know, not having time for his games. She's got an agenda of her own and she's not looking for romance. She's got stuff to get done. She's awesome. There, there is nothing about her character that I don't like. There's nothing about her performance that I don't like. Um, and I, I remember liking Wei Lin when I first saw this movie, but rewatching and I've I've watched it in the years since clearly, but but rewatching it for uh, for this show and maybe it's because I, I sort of you know fell in love again with Michelle Yeoh on Discovery on uh, Star Trek mm-hmm. Discovery for those of you listening to Trek FM who don't know what Discovery is, um, 
and just thought, oh, she's cool, she's powerful, she's clearly got range as an actor. Um, being able to go back and watch this again and just really pay attention to her performance, uh, she makes the most out of every scene. And uh, if they had done another Bond movie together, I would have been very happy with that too. She's so great too at the um, being coy about everything. She plays her cards close to her chest and she's always just, you know, messing with him, but not revealing anything. I had to throw that in there. In in a lot of ways, I feel like they, by the time she gets on screen, they they write her almost as a co-lead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she's not playing second fiddle to Bond. And then, you know, when she... They they go back and forth throughout the film of needing to help each other or save each other, which is nice too. So uh, when any of those happen, it, it, it's more about, well, we've seen Bond get captured before, you know, so we know that can happen. And he does in this film and, and they, they go back and forth of, of helping her. And I just really, <coughs> I appreciate that about her character. And I think, you know, as you said, John, there's just nothing about her you don't like in this movie i feel exactly the same way and and what i kind of like is that by the time they get to the end and they've destroyed the stealth boat and they're you know canoodling on a <laughs> part of it you know it 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 feels like the same thing that you uh, that bond get like the the like okay this is the time for frivolity it wasn't earlier mm-hmm. but yeah. you know now is the time when we can enjoy the spoils of having won the day you know so even even them um you know gonna have sex at the end it it kind of makes even more sense than a lot of the other bond movies because one they've been through something together yeah like that but two they're both spies you know and and so we get the feeling like she's the james bond of china um Mm -hmm. the jane bond of china so uh you know it's i just i love the way that they write her character because She's never second fiddle to Bond, I don't feel like, in the film. Um, and she feels like his equal in every way. And and that's that's great writing. Yep. Well, uh, talk about, you know, cars and motorcycles and helicopters. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this movie is, I think, jam-packed with some memorable Bond action sequence. And uh, re-watching it, I was surprised just how many great action sequences I think that this movie had. And and it added some, you know, when I, I think of back now, it actually adds some scenes that I'm like, yeah, the, these stack up with, you know, the rest of the Bond franchise. When you've got the opening action sequence, you've got a halo jump, remote control cars that don't feel dumb, uh, and two people handcuffed on a motorcycle being chased by... A helicopter, I mean, that, I don't know what more you could want in a Bond movie. Right, and it the helicopter even flying so low to the ground that the blades are chopping things as it's going by. Yeah, I mean, it, well, the, the halo jump is impressive on its own. Like I said, the opening scene is great. Uh, the remote control car, it, first of all, it's a, it's a believable car. You know, it's it's a BMW. We, we've seen BMWs. Nobody's that good at a remote control with anything. But, right. <laughs> you know, we but that that scene is just so good. Bond Bond played a lot of 007. He must have. I. Yeah, clearly. He, that's how he got so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <right. laughs> 
<laughs> but a part of what makes that scene so good is the the confine of the parking deck and you see the walls coming down and all that stuff it, it's just great um the the pacing of that scene i love even opening that with the little bit of comedy of the guys touching the handles and getting shocked mm-hmm. and then going back to do it again and continuing to get shocked <laughs> it's like duh you idiot um he's terrific in that scene but um that uh that motorcycle chase it, to me is perfection because it, it manages to tonally hit all the right notes so it, it it's serious but it doesn't feel deadly serious it doesn't feel brooding it's just like oh, okay they're in danger this is happening um but with that said it, it's light where it needs to be light but it's not silly. There's no slide whistle. There's no triple take pigeon. There's none of that stuff. Um, and then going back to their chemistry, their relationship, that scene is not just a great action scene. It is acted well by Pierce Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh. There, there's this sort of flirtation without it feeling like we're breaking from the scene. It doesn't feel out of nowhere. Uh, the the stunts are great without it feeling like it's totally science fiction. Um, the first time I watched that scene, I just remember like, like all of us were just taken in by the action. What's going to happen next? They're driving on a roof. They're going to jump over a helicopter. You know, watching it again and just watching their performances, I, I think it's hands down one of the best Bond action sequences because they they never... They never overstep the, their bounds, but they still manage to wow us in every shot. It's important in a Bond action sequence to feel plausible and probable at the same time uh, and fantastic. And this one, I think you're absolutely right, Don. It, it does because I feel like they can do everything that they do. Uh, in in the the sequence, but it also feels Bond fantastical, you know. And then they've just they found the magic, and I think all of the action sequences that they created, you know, that remote control car is genius. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like it's just genius. And and the the pure joy on Brosnan's face when he's like you know uh, dropping the little you know. Um, poppers on the ground so they get the tires you know and they you know or he's gonna you know blow up a a car with a missile or any of those things it's just really well acted and even just the scenes of him turning and being thrown in the car like you're never taken out of the scene that that for the most part i think the effects work in this movie is really well done and they kept at a minimum where they were you know doing an effect you know like them falling you know, with the banner and stuff. So that so much of it, again, does what Bond does best, which is to feel real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this, the, you're never really taking out of these major action sequences like the remote control car or them being on the motorcycle where you're just like, ah, oh, that just, that doesn't look right. Uh, you're, you, it never, it never, I never had that problem. And so, yeah, you know, I, I have so much fun watching these and wow, yeah, I, I think, when I think of this film now, I'm like, yeah, this this has some of the... I mean, it holds up to having, like... They knew they weren't going to outdo the tank. And, right. You know, you're just not going to outdo the tank. But yeah. you do something that is completely different. Um, 
and just as inventive as that. Uh, and you got it, and they they nailed it. So, um, uh, we, Chrissy, you mentioned earlier about how David Arnold's score really sold you in some places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask you guys about that because obviously the score for the last movie was uh, a, a, a travesty, a train wreck. I mean, every adjective that I could e- express at that moment, it's it's <laughs> god-awful. <laughs> In fact, I don't think God had anything to do with that one. I'm pretty sure he didn't, or it would have been better. Um, but David Arnold comes in, and this freaking score sounds like classic Bond. It and And what is great, I don't know if you guys knew this, but John Barry actually recommended him. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's where it comes from. Yeah, it, it totally sold me. I mean, of course, you can tell all the places where they brought in the, the classic Bond themes back. Um, but I, I think the best parts where it really shined for me was in the action scenes. I felt like Arnold did such a great job with using music to build the tension and make you feel like those people were doing their own stunts and that, you know, the situation was really happening. Um, every single time I felt myself like clenching my blanket going, Oh my God, <laughs> even though I knew what was going to happen already, I was still going, are they going to make it? Um, and, and so I think there's no higher compliment I could pay him than that. Um, so I think it was perfect. The only thing I didn't like was even though I like Cheryl Crow, usually I don't like her singing a Bond opening song because I I was telling my husband, it kind of sounds to me like she struggles with the high notes. That's what bothered me. You, you are so just speaking right to me. All right. (laughs) The, um, the David Arnold score is great and, uh, no pun intended. It hits all the right notes. Um, the modern stuff sounds of its era without sounding dated, yep. uh, which is a problem with some Bond soundtracks. The references to classic Bond in there are spot on perfect. Um, the uh, the Cheryl Crow song, if I never hear it again for as long as I live, that will be too soon. <laughs> I, I remembered hating that song. And then I'm like, okay, well, for this rewatch, I really, I just need to seriously rewatch the whole movie, even though I know I'll cringe during that song. It was even worse than I remembered it. Um, you're right. She she struggles through that song. She's screechy. It does not fit her voice or her style at all. Let's move on and talk about something much more important. The Katie Lang song, Surrender. That is in my top five of all Bond songs of all time. David Arnold, stroke of genius, said, okay, if you're going to hand me this Cheryl Crow song, I'm going to come up with my own song with Katie Lang. We're going to throw it in there. And then he cleverly wrote the incidental music in the movie to reference that song. Because nice. he knew it was the better piece. I love, love, love that song. And uh, the, there was something about the soundtrack that may not have been saved if they didn't have it. The, the problem is that I felt like they didn't write a song for Shell Crow. Right. And mm-hmm. that's the issue. And and I feel like, you know, if you had had another singer do that song, it would have been a good song. Um, because I don't feel like the song itself is bad. I feel like the singing of the song is bad. Yeah. It just it just doesn't work. I, I agree. I, it's not like I dislike Cheryl Crow. I like Cheryl Crow. 
for the most part. I just don't feel like it fits here. And so, um, yeah, the, I agree with you, John. The Katie Lang song is better. Mm. Um, but I just David Arnold's soundtrack is a masterpiece, you yeah. know. Um, and the fact that they keep bringing him back, uh, you know, throughout uh, – the rest of Brosnan's era, I th- I'm pretty sure that he's back for the rest of them, if I remember correctly. Which, thank God, um, you know, he he really, I think he understands exactly what a Bond soundtrack is supposed to sound like. And like you said, John, one of the joys of of the music here is the fact that when he does do something that's a little bit more modern it still fits with the classic Bond feel. So you, it, you're not pulled out, um, which is wonderful. And so I, I, I've i listened to this one a few times over the last uh, few weeks just because I, I, I like listening to the soundtrack, especially when I enjoy it uh, as we're getting closer to doing the movie. And I was really enjoying uh, re-listening to this one and the fact that he had done, you know, such a good job. And so um, I really appreciate that. And, you know, it makes me excited for the fact that I know um, he's back for The World Is Not Enough. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I yeah, gosh. Uh, and <laughs> can we just say on the soundtrack, the Moby rendition of the James Bond theme, it's great. the reimagining that he does yeah. is incredible. Yeah, it's awesome. Oh. Yeah. When they have the little interlude and they put in the Goldfinger, you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. It's so <laughs> perfect. I mean, it just, oh, it's so great. So, yeah, if you don't have this one as a soundtrack, go find it somewhere. Uh, you know, it, it, it really is one that you will enjoy listening to, I think, over and over again. Uh, it will make your workday much more epic. So, yeah. Um, for you guys, uh, you know, we've had a lot of good things to say about Tomorrow Never Dies. So I'm very interested to get to our ratings and to see where you guys, you know, kind of put your stamp on it. Um, and so, Christy, for you, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, what do you got? So I do have to throw in there two people we didn't get to mention, three actually, but two big names that everybody will know. Gerard Butler made a cameo in this movie. He was a crewman on the Devonshire oh, as it was right. going down. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it's my man. I love him. Um, anyway, so also um, Vincent Schiavelli. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. As Dr. Kaufman, y'all. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Yes. So great. Uh, I remembered him most from Ghost, actually, because he was so freaking terrifying. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love him. And so I, I was glad that he was in this movie as that assassin character. He just he's perfect as a villain. I love him. Um, and then the other one, I was glad to see Joe Don Baker was back as Jack Wade. Yep. Hundred percent, and that he's still just playing the uh, kind of like Texan sounding guy who's like, you know, we were never here, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. It was the best. He just—he seems like a guy that you want to hang out with. Yeah, hold on. Did you hear anybody say Devonshire? I didn't hear anybody say Devonshire. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> love him. Yeah, he's great. And and Vincent Chiavelli, he he hit the right note of being menacing and weird but he also had that just little bit of comedic he wasn't delivering comedy 
you just could tell that he was aware of the comedy of what was going on too. It, it was just enough. Like he wasn't going for the joke, but his discomfort, all, all of that was just so good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I love him and it's such a small part, but it's so memorable because it's creepy well, and weird. Yeah. And I feel like it's memorable too, because then he has to go, ah, stop yelling in my ear. What? <laughs> yeah, right. 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 He plays it exactly right. Oh, yeah. So funny. So what did you rate it? That's true. I probably need to give it an actual number. <laughs> Sorry, I'm talking about all the people I loved. I, I give it an 8 out of 10 because it had such amazing action to it. I loved the soundtrack. It had all of these big name actors that I thought worked really well in a movie. Usually I feel like when a movie has that many people I've known so well from other things, it can tend to not have as good of a plot, but it didn't feel that way at all. Um, and I was really glad to see a Bond woman getting to be, you know, um, on the same level as Bond um, with Michelle Yeoh. I just was really impressed again on my rewatch of this movie. I don't remember liking it as much the first time I saw it. So um, I give it an eight out of 10. Sweet. Um, one thing that we didn't talk a lot about in this episode is Pierce Brosnan. And because we, we gave him a lot of attention last time with Goldeneye, rightfully so. Um, but thinking back on our discussion on Goldeneye, uh, there was something in that movie that that didn't click as well with me as I thought it would. Because I remember liking that movie a lot. And then just something about rewatching it, it, it wasn't. Uh, it, it wasn't firing on all cylinders for me all the time, even though there's so much in that movie that I love. Couldn't quite put my finger on it. Um, maybe, maybe I felt like in Goldeneye, they kept having to telegraph to us, this is James Bond, just over and over and over again. Uh, w whether it was in the movie itself or in the lead up to the movie, just sort of the, the press anticipation around Pierce Brosnan, the changeover from Timothy Dalton to him. But they kept having to remind you this is James Bond. In this movie, I just felt like he's James Bond. Mm -hmm. I, you know, the, he just is. And he just is solid in that role. And the movie just has to unfold around him. Um I also feel like it, it, it's just a very straightforward movie about who's doing what, what the relationships are, what the complications are, and where we need to end up. Um, I Sadly, I'm anticipating what's coming with the Pierce Brosnan Bond movies, and I don't want to... I, I don't want my ranking to be uh, a comparative ranking. Because I, I, it doesn't suit me. I don't think it suits anybody listening to this show to say, well, here's where it ranks compared to the other Brosnan and here's where it ranks compared to the other Bond movies in general. I think for me, I always like to approach this as how well does a movie succeed at what it's trying to do. Just as a singular unit, how well does this movie perform based on what they were trying to do? Amazing stunts, great soundtrack, a lead actor who I feel like just completely nails it in every moment, and a counterpart with Michelle Yeoh who completely nails it in every moment. Uh, there's so much that I like about this, and what I don't like is 
pretty minor. I think if there's a weak link here, we all agree that it might just have something to do with the bad guy, even though there's a lot about the bad guy that we really like, at least the premise of the bad guy that we all really like. So I'm actually going to give this nine and a half flamethrowing dragons, as we saw in uh, Wei Lin's lab. I mean, who doesn't have one? Uh, well, I've got two behind me. I'm just, I'm afraid yeah. to reach back well, I mean, too far. It, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Torch this well, show. It, it, yeah. I tell you what, I, it, it lights the cigar like nothing else, right? Now, right. So. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just, I love, God, I really enjoyed getting to, to listen to your guys' ratings because I feel like you both pulled out um, so many great parts of this movie. So I don't have a lot to say other than I think you're both 100% correct in your assessment. Um, John, I appreciate you pulling out specifically Brosden. Um, that was something that I was thinking as I was watching the movie, just how comfortable he is in this role, how effortless it was for him. And and I, I felt like he was able to stretch his wings a little bit. And part of that was the material they gave him with like the Paris Carver character and that kind of stuff. So that was really nice. And the the joy of kind of watching him play often an equal um, with Wei Lin, which was also, I think, really enjoyable. We don't get to see a lot in a, in a Bond movie where he is truly with an equal. Uh, and so uh, all of that, you know, this this movie, like you said, it's it's almost like the Mary Poppins of, of James Bond movies. You know, it's practically perfect in every way. Except for two words, stealth boat. Um, you know, so because of that, I am going to give this, I'm going to give this nine out of ten stealth boats. Wow. So, I, I, yeah. I'm going to send you a picture of the real stealth boat, the, the Sea Shadow from uh, 1982, the IX-529. Oh, I got to see that. Okay. Created I by can't Lockheed. wait to see it. Yeah. yeah, I cannot wait to see it. So uh, maybe we'll share that on Twitter too with the the Trek FM followers, just so they can see that. But I love, I absolutely love that we have this experience. You know, I mean that this Bond movie was so much fun to watch, and I think it felt like to me that we all kind of came into this one going, "Oh, you know, tomorrow never dies." You know, okay, and it. It, it felt like to me that this is a movie that kind of surprised us all uh, where we ended up in our ratings, which I think it's a it's an underrated Bond movie. When people are listing great Bond movies, they just don't think about this one. And I don't know. And maybe it's because Goldeneye is universally recognized for so many people as like Brosnan's possible best. But I think you can make an argument that maybe this is his best. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, no, no, I will have to have that discussion at the end of uh, Die Another Day. Although I do know that if you're going to create an equal for Bond, um, you do it this way, not the <coughs> jinx. Uh, so, um, yeah. Uh, Wait, yeah. or Madonna. So, oh, I, anyway, um, let's not talk about that song right now. Anyway. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, everyone. I really appreciate it. want to say a special thanks to our associate producers here through Patreon, uh, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Daniel Noah, who has joined us as well. Thank you guys so much for uh, supporting the network and specifically the 602 Club, pulling that out as the show you wanted to support. Um, it's, a, it's a massive undertaking to, to do this thing we call Trek FM. It's very expensive, and we can't do it alone. So if you want to help the network, you can go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and become a partner with us. 
Make sure everything that we're doing here each and every week comes to you. Uh, we have amazing shows almost every single day of the week coming out to you. And, you know, they're ad-free for you guys. So if you want to keep it that way, we've got some great contribution levels where you have even more to give back to you. But honestly, every little bit helps. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team. Uh, now, Christy... I know you have so much going on. We happen to be talking um, off the show about how, the idea of, uh, of of geek fashion. Um, and, uh, well, you're a geek fashion wizard. So um, let everybody know what else you are doing uh, these days and where they should be following you, which they should be following you. Well, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Um, yes, so you can follow me on uh, Galactic Fashion Pod on Instagram um, and Galactic Fashion on Twitter. Um, um, on the podcast with my friend Teresa Delgado. We talk once a month about what's going on in geek fashion. Um, and we've got big news this week because it's San Diego Comic-Con as we're recording this. So um, stay tuned for that. And you can find me personally at Bespin Bell, B-E-L-L-E, on Twitter and Instagram as well. And uh, Mr. John Champion, uh, if people would like to find you, where can they do that? And where should they be following you? <laughs> well, I would love it if people would look up Mission Log Pod. So that's the Mission Log Podcast site, either Twitter or Facebook, Mission Log Pod. Or you can go to podcast.roddenberry.com to check out Mission Log and all the other shows that we're uh, slowly adding to uh, the Roddenberry banner. Um, and if you want to find me personally, at DVD Geeks on Twitter, that's where I'll talk Mon, not so much on the Mission Log site. Um, oh, and uh, uh, sure, Instagram, slow-mo gentlemen. Haven't, haven't been slow recently, but it is convention season right now, so uh, maybe I'll be able to throw in some more slowness in there soon. Well, and just a teaser, um, there may be some very special swim trunks coming to mm. Slow Mo Gentlemen mm -hmm. as well. So you are going to be wanting to follow that because we have something yes. in store for you. Yes. So um, <laughs> keep it yes, PG absolutely. now. <laughs> keep it PG. Uh, no, it's it's PG. Uh, well, I don't know about PG. It's I PG. Mean, it's just slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Uh, if if PG stands for perfect guy. Ah, yeah. zing. Oh, oh, you're yeah. hired. You are a hired man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter as well. Uh, I'm not quite as slow as John, uh, but uh, I'm just not as cool as him. Uh, I'm MattRushing02. I'm also on Instagram under the same name. I'm here on the network talking The Orb with Chris Jones, all about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We hope to be back with new episodes soon, so stay tuned. Uh, you can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I'm talking about uh, Star Wars with John Mills over on Aggressive Negotiation. It is such a fun show to do with him as we just dive into the Star Wars universe each and every week and talk about a fun topic there. So uh, you can also find me doing Owl Post with Dre Kaufman, talking about each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series. One chapter at a time we are actually right in the middle of the goblet of fire right now which it's it's been a joy to be doing that and then last but not least i'm doing cinema stories with my good friend courtney as we talk all about films through the lens of faith but i want to say thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you're here